Hello and welcome to the October edition of my book club. This month we read Averages Over by Tyler Cowen, the renowned GMU economist, blogger at the incredibly popular blog Marginal Revolution, as well as an all-round polymath autodidact, incredibly well-read and deeply thought individual. This book main idea is that average, the middle achieving outcomes that people can expect in life are going down. They've gone down in the past and they're going to continue to go down in the future. The most obvious implication of that is in the world of work. It means that the future is going to see a lot less jobs that earn a middling income and a lot more situations where you have a few very high earners and a lot of people who are earning a lot less income. Now, interestingly enough, Tyler is arguing here that this is not because simply the rich are getting richer and that it's a it's an exaggeration of the existing trends towards inequality. Rather, he blames it on three trends that he thinks are going to change the fundamental nature of work and how we do it. So the first is automation. Uh, everyone, you probably heard by now, there's it seems like every day there's some new opinion piece about how the robots are going to take all our jobs and that it's going to lead to either a Terminator situation or some technocratic utopia, depending on who you listen to. Now, Tyler Cohen is a lot more uh, reserved when he makes this claim. He's not really arguing that the robots are going to take over, but rather that the automation and the increase of automation that's already happened, if we just extrapolate that trend even in the next few decades is going to mean a difference in how we work and what the expectations are going to be. The next is outsourcing, globalization, the idea that China and India have recently become huge players in the economic market, but also that there's many countries in Africa and Latin America that are perhaps still growing and going to be also playing a very big role in the future. Finally, there's an interesting idea which doesn't get as much press, but I think is an important part of the story, and Tyler includes it in his book, which is what I'm going to call clustering. And clustering is this phenomenon of groups in terms of regions or in terms of companies showing, again, this averages over. So you have some cities which are really prosperous and some that are failing, and you have some companies which are really successful and everyone earns a lot of money and they make a lot of profit, and you have other companies which are not like that. So I think these three trends, automation, outsourcing, and clustering, are all important to look at if we want to understand what is your career going to be like in the future? If you're running a business, what should you expect? How should you be planning your own personal development so that you can take advantage of these trends rather than have them take advantage of you. So the first and most important one I want to discuss is automation. So automation is, again, I said this is a popular topic. It, it seems like every day you see a new opinion piece where someone is saying how either the robots are going to take all our jobs or they're not going to take all our jobs or we need to stop the robots or we need to accelerate the coming of the robots. Really, I think that a lot of these opinion pieces tend to exaggerate the facts somewhat. Personally, I think that although the advancements in deep learning and neural nets and these kinds of advanced machine learning algorithms are very impressive, I don't believe we're on an imminent path to, in the next decade or two, there's going to be some pure artificial intelligence that can do all of the jobs that a normal human being can do. It's probably going to be something more like a century or more, although that 
estimate has a lot of ambiguity and a lot of uncertainty to it. However, what we really need to think about as people living in this generation is how do we adapt in the meantime? What do we deal with the fact that automation and technology is already happening? It's already the case that I don't use a travel agent to book my plane tickets. I go on Kayak or Flight Hub and I find the cheapest flight through a very complicated algorithm that searches all the airlines and finds their lowest prices. I already don't go to a librarian and ask them to find me reference materials. I use Google Scholar or even just a plain Google search to locate the things that I need. And this is sort of an interesting conundrum we have because we have some other technologies which haven't quite arrived yet but are on the cusp. So we can imagine things like driverless cars, that that's going to transform quite a few industries. We can also imagine that advancements in deep learning or machine learning are also going to make many tasks that previously required an element of human use to rely increasingly on the machine case. So how do we deal with this sort of mixed situation where human beings do some of the work, machines do some of the work, and human being plus machines together do a lot of the work? How do we really plan around that? And I think Tyler Cowen has the right prescription here. He really maps out a transition path of four stages that he imagines that we're going to go through. And this isn't something that we go through collectively, meaning that we're entirely at one stage and then we entirely move to another stage. Rather, individual industries, individual job positions are going to go through these four stages. And it may take a short amount of time. It may have already happened for some uh, of these, I mentioned the travel agent analogy that for a large section of the population, a large types of flights, travel agents are already obsolete. But there's also probably jobs right now that are almost exclusively done by human beings, like let's say a nurse or a doctor. There's a little bit of machine assistance, but these are still by and large being handled by a person rather than some diagnostic robot. So these four stages are the first is man only, where there is a human being only who is working on this. The next is the human plus machine, where the human is still doing the bulk of the work, but is using the software, using tools to facilitate it. The next is a machine plus human combo. This is where now the machine is doing most of the work. It's doing a lot of the heavy tasks and the human being is more there to monitor, to make sure it doesn't go wrong, fix common errors, etc. And finally, we have the machine only where now there isn't really much room for the human being to improve upon the machine's results. The machine itself gives the best results possible. And so Tyler Cowen in explaining these trends brings up the example of chess. And in particular, he talks about something which I hadn't heard of before, which is called freestyle chess. Freestyle chess is where, unlike most chess tournaments, where you have your brain and basically nothing else to work out chess problems and, and competing against your opponent, in freestyle chess, you are encouraged to use chess software, use chess programs to compete against your fellow competitors. So in this case, it's not the person who... Uh, is the best at chess who necessarily wins, but the person who is best at using the chess software. And although chess might seem like a, like a rather odd example to use when we're talking about the economy, because chess is a fairly small uh, and perhaps insignificant fraction of most countries' economies, chess is a useful example because it's 
a fairly clean situation where we can see these four stages of transition. So until very recently, chess was basically man only until Kasparov faced off against IBM's Deep Blue. The situation was that the best chess players in the world could always beat a machine. And over a short period of time, the machines got better and better. And this wasn't really so much of a, an innovation in terms of the machines becoming smarter in the sense that they have uh, more sophisticated algorithms, although that did play a small role, but rather it was mostly a matter of computing power, that computers got better and the brute force calculations that before were too slow to compete with the intuition of a grandmaster suddenly got fast enough that now they're actually better. So the first step was this pre deep blue era where we have man only, where chess is the only thing you can do. And indeed, you have lots of pundits, lots of people saying that chess is the sort of pinnacle of human intuition and existence and creativity. And so only a fully general, you know, can pass the Turing test type AI will be uh, an excellent chess player. Now, it turned out that this wasn't the case. You can have a fairly, um, an algorithm that is a far, far away from the general AI uh, winning at chess, but this wasn't so obvious at the time. Next you have this sort of man plus machine. Now this is an area where the excellent players were still uh, making their own decisions, but they were often using computers to guide their analysis. So if they wanted to explore a position in their research prior to a big game, they might use a chess engine, which could kind of enumerate through a lot of the possibilities, and then they could use their own judgment to sort of guide this process to get to it. Next, you see the uh, machine plus human being teams, which are basically where we have freestyle chess, where the freestyle chess gets a little bit of added help from the human judgment, that the human being can sometimes pick different chess engines, understand how they work, know where they're going to be better, where they're going to be worse, and use that to sort of combine them together. Now, this book was written a little while ago, but I feel like he is already signaling, so maybe the people who are familiar with chess can determine whether this has happened, but we might be reaching really a machine-only era of chess where the correct chess moves are often so difficult to really unravel that it's impossible or it's very difficult for a human being to actually improve upon them. So it's no longer the case that you would use a chess engine, but you would have enough intuitive judgment to know where it's going to falter. Rather, it's going to be a situation where the machine or the chess engine is going to know the right move and you really shouldn't question it. So this is something we can also imagine in our situation with automobiles, although we're yet to see the full transition. Right now, cars are essentially man only. This is a situation where human beings alone are driving the cars. However, there's a lot of cars on the market right now which have a little bit of man plus machine. You can see some models of Tesla, some other companies have these driverless car features where you can let the car do a little bit of autopilot while you're driving it. Um, some of these cars are still in sort of a prototype phase and they're not ready for mass market. But we can see that kind of man plus machine hybrid here where human being is still required. It's still required to handle difficult situations, situations where the sensors don't work very well, situations where it's a little bit hard to judge. Now, it's hard to say how long this phase will last. It may be that the companies, because of fears of 
regulatory worries or safety might want to keep working on the cars and wait until they've really reached the era where they're very good and very safe before they want to release them to the public. But we can also imagine a situation where like your cruise control, you turn on your car and it can follow GPS, but you still have to be behind the wheel and you have to be able to take over if it needs you to. Next, we can think of a situation where it's uh, mostly machine and then a little bit of human control. So we can imagine driverless cars where the car basically drives itself at all situations, but it's a little more fragile than a person. So it, it has certain situations where it will break down and it lets the human being know, okay, you're going to need to drive me right now because I can't drive because the sensors aren't working or there's a glitch or a software malfunction or what have you. Finally, you can imagine, and this is the thing that many people are talking about when they talk about driverless cars, is the machine-only phase, where the driverless cars are so good that it's actually irresponsible for a human being to be operating them, that they can brake faster, detect dangers quicker, that they can avoid collisions with reflexes that human beings simply can't match. And so it may be the case that all new cars are required to be this version of car or old cars maybe perhaps have to be retrofitted. This is sort of the machine only phase. And what I think is often missed in this discussion, which Tyler Cowen takes great pains to declare, is that there is these transitionary phases, that there's these phases in the middle where you have both human beings and machines and they're working together in complicated ways that is sometimes missed by this grand picture of the computers are going to take all our jobs. So what does this mean? Because for many industries and for many types of jobs, this these middle two phases where you see either majority human being or majority machine, but there's still a team between those two elements, is that the type of work is going to change. And for many of these things, this might last even over a century or more where we have this gap where there's something that the machines can do, something the human beings can do, and they work better together, but it's not the case that there's a dominant approach where either completely human being or completely machine is the correct approach. So some ways, this is already the world that we live in. This is a world where we are all using software all the time to do our jobs, that many, many opportunities are coming because the person needs to understand how to use the software. But I think that with a lot of the innovations in machine learning, pattern recognition, that this is only going to continue, that we're going to have more and more sophisticated software programs that are going to require more sophisticated people to employ them. Now, one of the mistakes that uh, Tyler Cowen notes that many people make is they make the erroneous assumption that because these innovations are coming from a STEM field, they're coming from engineering, science, mathematics, technology, the STEM fields, because of this, there's many people who think, well, maybe it's the case that these are going to be um, all STEM jobs, so that the only thing we can do is just teach everyone to become a programmer, teach everyone to become an engineer. And what Teller Cohen really suggests here is that that's not necessarily the case, that a lot of the jobs, a lot of the professions that are going to come up are not going to be technical professions and they're not going to that's not going to be their content instead it's going to be using technology to do some job task that is not necessarily technical and what this means is that it's important to understand the technology be sophisticated in its use 
but not necessarily that you have to be the one making the technology. So I think a really good example is the work that I do on this blog and, and writing, speaking for this podcast right now, that this entire profession that I'm doing is new and is enabled by technology. But what I'm actually doing, which is writing, speaking, thinking, is much more in the liberal arts direction as an actual profession. I'm not doing very much programming. I'm not doing very much uh, typing in systems. However, I do have to understand how those systems work. I have to understand how the software works that runs my blog. I have to understand how the search engines work, which will index it and send me traffic. I have to understand lots and lots of technical things, but the ultimate task of my job is not technical in nature. So Tyler Cowen thinks that a lot of the jobs that he thinks that people are underestimating how important they're going to be are things that involve people because these are the things that currently the machines have a really difficult time doing. That marketing, one-on-one uh, -on -one personal interactions, uh, that kind of coaching, teaching, these are all professions that are likely to preserve in some role, but they're going to be hybridized with the machine. We can see that with a lot of people who are doing uh, online marketing or online advertising, that it is a new field of advertising where it's not enough to just create a catchy slogan and have a nice design. You also have to understand how the internet works and how your ads are going to show. And so there's a real hybridization of technical skills and your core skill, which is marketing. You could also see this in professions like teaching. So right now, a lot of teaching is still in the human-only phase. But with the rise of massively open online courses and platforms like Khan Academy, it's certainly possible to imagine that there's some functions of teaching which are going to be wholly replaced by technology. So you can imagine that instead of having the teacher deliver lectures, you have the best teacher in the world delivering the lecture in some pre-recorded studio in ideal conditions with a perfect public speaking voice. And then what the teacher is doing is not actually conveying the material in the content, but rather what they're doing is helping the students. So they're going around to make sure they understand, they're filling in the gaps, they're facilitating the learning process. So these are just two professions that are often said you know, both, uh, well, marketing less so, but teaching is definitely something that is claimed to be, you know, this is a profession that's going to go out of business once these machines take over and make education cost a fraction of a cent to, to do. But I think what we're really seeing is that it's going to change the nature of what it means to be a teacher, that the nature of what it means to be a marketer is going to change. Certainly for me, in the sort of writer-journalist pace, what it means to be a writer and journalist has changed dramatically over the last little while. And I think this is something that we can expect to continue in the future. So I think if we understand this sort of roadmap, this four transitionary periods and showing how it's this hybridization of doing some job tasks that may or may not be technical with a machine complement is going to be the model or the standard for work in the future can give us a lot of ideas of how we're going to plan our own career. Now, before I go into the steps that I think that you should take to apply these averages over ideas to yourself, I think we should move on to another trend which is also exacerbating these ideas, at least in developed westernized countries. Um, this is outsourcing and basically a lot of this accounts for the rise of China and India becoming fairly low income countries to now middle or upper middle income countries. Um, in many ways, 
China and India's rise is um, is a huge change in how the economy works. The center of gravity of the economy, if you will, has shifted away from the United States. And this has some downsides, I think, for people in westernized countries. I think some people uh, here fear that outsourcing or free trade or these kinds of measures are going to destroy North American or Western European jobs. But I also think that we have to think of this as a positive. And personally, I think that outsourcing is mostly a positive story, although the automation story is something that certainly has a lot more debate. I think the obvious plus side is that this has been good for the Chinese and the Indians and the people who have been lifted up from poverty in this situation. I think there's something rather spiteful in a lot of punditry that says that, you know, billions of people coming out of near poverty over the last 30 years is anything but a good thing just because it happens to negatively impact few people who were, to be honest, relatively rich off to begin with. So I think there's certainly some uh, selfishness or some uh, myopia in viewing these trends. I also think that it's even if we're just in analyzing it, now I'm, I'm Canadian, I, I live in North America, but even if I'm analyzing it from the selfish position of one of my countrymen, is that this is also a benefit for the world because China and India becoming much larger, even if it has been eroding some of these middle class jobs, some of these industrial jobs as manufacturing has gone overseas, as a lot of simple tasks in accounting or customer service have moved over to offshores. What has also happened is that with the explosion in these economies and these growth in these economies, we're also seeing a much larger market. So really, this is also a benefit and a cost. And so like automation, this is where we're seeing this averages over because the people who were doing the jobs that were sort of protected by the fact that they had to be done in North America or in Western Europe, and they were under that kind of regime where they couldn't be outsourced to a cheaper country, that these were many times the people who were losing out. These were in the middle. However, the people who are uh, more robustly protected against this kind of thing are the people who can market larger products. So in many ways, Silicon Valley and the tech world has been one of the benefactors of this trend because these are globalized products that, you know, well, China doesn't use a lot of the internet-based products, but they still buy iPhones, they still buy Apple merchandise. And so this is a trend where the market has grown considerably and it has allowed a lot of economic growth domestically in many of the developed countries as well. So what we're really seeing is, again, as, as to repeat the title of the book, averages over, that there's a few people perhaps concentrated in these types of industries that can benefit from a large globalized marketplace and are less hurt by the fact that there is greater competition. On the other hand, you also have a story which I haven't focused on as much, which is people at the lower income spread, they are also less affected by this because the people who are working customer service jobs at McDonald's or people who are doing retail jobs, these are also less likely to be outsourced because they're locally dependent, they're things that require face-to-face -face contact, and they're also less likely to be automated because they're also the same kinds of jobs that uh, are harder to do with a machine. So 
these two trends, automation and outsourcing, both point to averages over. And there's one more trend I wanted to discuss just very briefly, not because it is, I think, uh, the most interesting, but just because it's something that I hadn't really heard discussed a lot. And so often you'll hear stories about outsourcing or automation because they tie into these easily visualizable narratives about robots and foreigners. But clustering, I think, is also a very interesting story. So this is the idea that it's not simply between individuals that we're seeing in averages over. What we're also seeing is through network effects, little clusters where there's going to be a clump of people or institutions that do really well and then those that do poorly and then there's going to be a hollowing out of this sort of average institution. So one way you can think about this is in regions. So regions at the state or at the city level, there's going to be some cities which are incredibly prosperous and generate most of the GDP for a country. And there's going to be many regions that are almost economically barren, that they don't produce that much and that struggle economically. I think this is a lot of the political story of what's happening in North America right now. You can see that in the change in the electoral dynamics of that elected Donald Trump, for instance, that you see uh, blue states, which are these concentrated urban markets, which have benefited largely from globalization, that have benefited from a lot of these trends. And you have poorer, more economically disadvantaged uh, interior and rural regions, which have suffered. So again, this is averages over. And unfortunately, if we are to believe Tyler Cowen, this is only going to get worse. Um, so that's one element of this clustering is that certain cities like the San Francisco and the Bay Area and New York are just dominating and then other areas, not so much. And we also see this in firms themselves, so within different companies. So I don't have the statistic at hand, but I remember reading an economic analysis that was suggesting a large portion of the income inequality that has risen, and this is income inequality, not wealth inequality, but income inequality was due to uh, differences between firms rather than within a firm itself. So the within a firm itself picture of inequality is often the one that gets the most press. This is the one where you have greedy CEOs earning 500 times their base level employees and that this gap is widening and widening. Now, I don't deny that that's the case, but what was interesting about this report is that perhaps an even bigger problem is the between firm picture. So this is the that the best firms, the highest earning firms, all of their employees do a lot better and that the people in the lower performing firms all do a lot worse, perhaps with some exceptions for the few people at the top and bottom in each. And so what this means is that this might create this kind of superstar firm effect where you want to work at Google or Apple and you don't want to work for Sears or some other struggling company and that this destiny to go in the right workplace environment or work for the right company is going to be increasingly important as well. So just to recap, there's three trends that all spell this averages over and the averages over is that the middle or the middle income, middle class uh, outcomes of the economy are all depressing and that it's the lower class and the upper class that are somewhat more resilient to this. Now, I focus more on the upper class because, you know, in many cases, the middle class is going to be shifting to the lower class as a result of these changes. But these three trends are automation, the fact that machines and technology are more prevalent, and that that is creating not only 
displacement in terms of jobs being replaced, but more importantly is changing the type of work that we're doing so that it's not enough to just be able to do a menial task. You need to be able to assist a computer to do such a task. And to assist the computer requires a much higher level of skill, much more sophisticated knowledge, perhaps a college level education or higher. Next, you have outsourcing, which is really, in the global terms, uh, the opposite of an average over is a lowering of income inequality as many large, poor countries are becoming middle-income countries. But for the westernized and developed countries, this does present a problem because many of the easier-to-outsource tasks are now going over there. And finally, this clustering effect where even within countries, even within industries, you're having some smaller groups and clusters of people capturing a lot of the benefits, likely because of networking effects, likely because of the fact that them all working together has this synergy and this greater productivity. And that's why you have superstar companies like Google and Amazon that have just been growing and wildly and wildly because they can benefit from these in-house resources. So what should you do about this? I think that there is a risk of sometimes describing the future and endorsing it. And I don't want to do that. I think that many of these trends are probably going to be negative for a lot of people. They might even be negative for you. I think that they are definitely going to be a change for a lot of people. And, and in many cases, change is a bad thing because change creates more difficulties. At the same time, I don't want to be overly pessimistic about these changes. All of these things are coming from a place of driving the economy to a larger size. So automation, well, yes, it's going to take people's jobs, but it also means those are jobs that people don't have to do anymore. If you were considering an economy of one person in your household, having a dishwasher is better than washing the dishes yourself, even though to a certain extent, the dishwasher has quote unquote unemployed you from washing dishes. Now, obviously, this displacement or this replacement of jobs or making jobs more capital intensive where you don't need as many people to perform it has some negative outcomes, particularly for the people that get out of the game where they can now earn a normal living. But it has the side effect that it's increasing the economy as a whole. So really, what this means for human beings often has to do with what kind of choices we're going to make as a society for what to do with this increased inequality. The next outsourcing, I think, is mostly a positive story and that the few people who see it as a large negative, I think, are overly focused on their narrow, selfish concerns of where they are and are forgetting the fact that China and India becoming a lot richer is really good for Chinese and Indian people and it probably has good impacts on average for North Americans, even though that, that average has some variance to it, so there's certainly some people who are left out. Clustering is, I think, somewhat worrisome because it does possibly stem from monopoly power. So you have big companies that are controlling large swaths of the economy and it's really difficult to compete against them. And that's something that's worrisome. However, I think that most people, despite some of the journalists attacking Silicon Valley companies, most people have a positive impression of this sector where the clustering is happening most. So I think we're still a ways from the idea that clustering itself is a demon to be railed against the way that automation and outsourcing currently are today. So what should you actually do about this though? So I think there's a couple steps that one can take, although of course these are large macroeconomic trends, 
So it's difficult to say with certainty what is the correct move. But I think the first thing to do is to develop skills in yourself that are going to resist automation or resist outsourcing. And this is something that I find interesting because many people, when they think of automation, they immediately go to STEM fields. So they're immediately thinking, oh, well, then I should be a programmer. I should be an engineer. Now, this isn't to say programmers and engineers are not great professions. In some areas like San Francisco, there's such a shortage of them that they can earn incredibly high salaries. But it's also not necessarily true that these are immune to outsourcing or or immune to automation. It may be the case that in the future, most of the engineering work is done in Shenzhen in China, or that the programming work is done in Bangalore, India. So we can't really be banking just because it's, it's visually similar to the automation that we foresee coming in the future, that these are necessarily the jobs that are going to win. And I think Tyler Cohen gives a really strong argument for why it's going to be the jobs that involve people skills and that leverage a machine plus people skills complement that are going to be very powerful. So for instance, marketing, coaching, being the kind of uh, person who is using the data and the information, but is communicating it, conveying it, packaging it, working with other people. I also believe that one of the ways that you can avoid this sort of outsourcing or automation trap is simply by developing deeper skills. So what we're seeing machines take over is very often the skills that are quite fast for a person to learn, or they are not very sophisticated in terms of complexity. Whereas the more you go up the skill hierarchy, the more ambiguous the skill application becomes, the more complex it is, the harder it is to outsource. So one example I heard from someone was that uh, accounting was a profession that was going to go out of, uh, this was someone I was talking to and they were making the claim that accountants were going to go out of business because in the future, no one's going to get an accountant, you're just going to have a machine that does your accounting for you. And I think this represents a little bit of a misunderstanding of what accountants actually do because obviously a bookkeeper, this is already a profession that has been largely overtaken by many simple software so that we're now in the machine plus human being category for bookkeeping where there's complicated accounting softwares that handle everything and then the human being just has to basically double check that they're doing the right thing and maybe handle a few smaller tasks. You don't need armies of people doing double entry bookkeeping in, uh, in an actual business ledger. On the other hand, accountants are very often people who are making strategic decisions on the basis of money. They're going to be deciding how is money flowing in a company, what's good, what's bad, how to diagnose these issues. And these are all very context sensitive. They all require communicating with people. They all require a deep level of intuition. So it's certainly possible that in the far future, accountants will be totally replaced by machines. My own personal belief is that this is a profession that will probably be resistant to it for a while. Now, why did I bring up accounting? Well, I'm bringing it up because you can see accounting and bookkeeping as sort of being on a spectrum of skill within that profession. So bookkeeping is on the sort of lower end of accounting skill, and then you have various types of accountants all the way up to sort of a high-level advisory role as an accountant as your sort of more, most deep, most insight-based, wisdom-based uh, type of accounting. And so what you really want to be doing in your profession is pushing up this scale because the further you push up this scale, the deeper your skills and competences, 
the more they're going to resist erosion from this middle vacuum of white collar, easy to do jobs that are going to be taken over by machines or outsourced to other countries. The second piece of advice I would offer is to learn to work with the algorithms rather than against it. So you want to position your career so that you are able to benefit from these trends by being something that you can add value to the technological landscape. Now this is something that's really difficult to talk in general. It's going to matter and manifest a lot more in the specifics. But I think that deep understanding of how technology works and how to apply it is going to be incredibly valuable. Now I'm personally of the belief that the deep learning and machine learning is a little bit overhyped right now because everyone's saying that you know these few algorithms are going to take over everything and I personally think that they're probably going to handle some specific cases but there's going to be a lot of cases that we still can't solve with these particular algorithms. However, let's say that we're just thinking about it from that lens, I think understanding machine learning is very important because if machine learning happens to impinge on your work, then you're going to want to have a deep understanding of how are these algorithms actually doing what they're doing so you can figure out where are they likely to go wrong, where are they likely to get a good result and a bad result so you can use your human intuition to operate them more effectively. A real simple example of this is learning to use Google properly. I know lots of people that really struggle to use Google, but if you're very good at Google, you can you know what kinds of keywords are going to bring up the results that you want, where Google will understand what you mean and where it might not. You'll also understand how to use some of the different syntactical constructions, such as double quoting around things so you can search for more exacting phrases or using the minus to remove certain results that you think are crowding it out. But using Google is a very basic skill, but I think it's an example of this broader trend that to do your job properly is going to be to have a technical competency so that you're able to augment what machines and what automated systems are able to do and apply it to yourself. And I think there's a certain sense that this also applies to outsourcing as well. I think it's a lot harder for the average employee to take advantage of outsourcing, but you definitely see this in books like The 4-Hour Workweek where Tim Ferriss is advocating these highly outsourced businesses where you only have to work four hours a week and you're still earning a good income because you have people in lower income countries doing a lot of the work for you for whatever there is a decent salary. And I think this outsourcing approach uh, is something that tends to apply more to business owners, but definitely knowing how to delegate work and allocate work more efficiently in a global sense is also something that potentially has advantages, although I think they're somewhat more limited in applicability to the average person than the learning to work with technology. And finally, and this is not going to come as a surprise to those of you who listen to me all the time, my last piece of advice would be to master the learning process itself. Because if anything, this trend means that the pressure to learn, the pressure to adapt and change environments quickly is going to go up and up and up. Already in my lifetime, I've seen many transitions where things used to be completely human and now they're completely machine. And I haven't been alive for that long, so there's a good chance that in your span of your career, you're going to face that possibility or that transition uh, in multiple areas of your work. And so if you are good at the learning process, if you know how to quickly pick up new skills by organizing projects, by organizing 
your time to quickly advance yourself, that's going to put you ahead. And the people who are rigid, inflexible, who are like, ah, I can't do this technology thing, or ah, I'm no good at math, I'm no good at learning these new things. These are going to be the people who left, get left behind when there was maybe a gap where you could still do sort of the uh, machine plus human being, and then it transitions to a point where if you don't know the, the machine or you don't know how to use the software, you're completely out of luck. So I think that this book has somewhat of a pessimistic tone. I think that there's definitely some challenges to be faced in the future, but I think with these challenges, there's also a lot of big opportunities. And so I, I highly recommend reading this book just because it goes into a lot more detail, and I think it will really extend these arguments a lot more than I made it. But I think that this summary is still gives you a good picture of what the major idea in Averages Over is about. So that's it for this month. Next month, I'm going to be doing Gödel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid by Douglas Hofstadter. This is a very interesting book, and it is really, I think, a very soft and interesting interlude into what is consciousness and how do patterns express themselves in particular in music, in literature, and in art. So thank you for listening, and I will see you next month.